anybody else want that to be true? Can anybody else hear the question, what if, and say, yes, please, Lord, please let that be true? Uh, in Christ Jesus, the answer is yes and amen. In Christ Jesus, it's yes and amen. As we transition to this moment where I'm going to teach you from Scripture, I want to just uh, remind those of you who have uh, found a home here at Oakland, who have been coming for a while, worshiping with us, and maybe even joining in Sunday school, uh, you are family, but we want to make that official, and so I invite you to the new members lunches that will start today and go for the next four weeks, where I get to hear your questions about Oakland, and I get to give you uh, our vision for what God has called us to be as a church in this place. If you are interested in becoming a member here, or you might be and you just don't know, lunch today, my place, as in like here, it's not actually my place, it's like our place, here, uh, it'll be great. If you have a Bible, and I pray you do, uh, turn to Hebrews, we're working our way through this book, we're in Hebrews chapter 4, we could live here for a year, we're going to get here in a week, I think, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 1, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's probably one in our lost and found. Uh, if there's not one there, I'll give you one, or you can buy your own. Uh, but this is the most important book in history. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of God's rest. For we have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as the Israelites did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share in the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, quote, So I declared on oath in my anger that they shall never enter my rest. End quote. And yet, God's works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere, God has spoken about the seventh day in these words, quote, On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, God says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter that rest, since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them and did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given the people rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There then remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. What you just heard is what we've been talking about for months now and what we'll keep talking about um, for the rest of our time in Hebrews because Hebrews has set up this elaborate uh, comparison, this elaborate parallel between the people of Israel who've been set free from Egypt. They've been liberated from Pharaoh and they've been on a journey through the wilderness to the promised land where God has promised he will give them rest. And we've seen over two weeks ago, we've seen before, that the people repeatedly rebel against God in the wilderness. That God is 
If you don't have sugar cane, honey is the sweetest thing in the world. And, uh, and so they're excited. They come back. But they won't go in because the people who live in the promised land are, quote unquote, giants. And so they're afraid of the giant. And so they refuse to go into the promised land. They say, we will not go. And they try to kill Moses and Aaron. They like literally try to kill them so that they can elect a new leader and go back to slavery. Today, I want to talk to you about busyness and about rest because they could not accept God's rest in the promised land because they had not learned to rest on God's promises in the wilderness. And you will not be ready for the rest in heaven, in glory. You will not be able to rest there if you don't learn to rest here, in this wilderness, on this life. So let me ask you a question. Uh, this is our prop for today. This is a hammock that I slept in when I lived in Mexico. Have you ever gone to lay down to fall asleep and just as you get into the bed, you get ready to go to sleep and then you remember that one thing you've got to do. You, you, you start to lay down and immediately think, I really should dust the ceiling fans. I really should give the dog a haircut. Or maybe I should go pick blackberries in the woods. Yeah, a couple of you. Okay, let me take it a step further. Have you ever shamed yourself for resting? You lay down, and there in the middle of the shade on a hot day, you hear voices in your head say stuff like, you're so weak. A real man doesn't rest. Your granddaddy never took a nap. A real woman irons her sheets. And if you had any class, you'd put curlers in your hair before you went to bed, not just jump in the shower with a towel around your head. Have you ever felt shame or guilt for resting or taking time out of the office? Have you ever gone on vacation and thought the people at work will think less of me because I'm on vacation? I know I have. There's been days where I left my car in front of this church intentionally so that you would not call me. So we're going to start knocking on the door every day. I don't care. Whatever. Let's take it a step further. Have you ever woke up in a panic? You tried to rest, but you startle awake looking for the next crisis you have to address. Ever wake up sweating and looking for the next problem that somebody's coming to you to, uh, to figure out, to address? Some of you have lived through trauma, and you know what it's like to wake up breathing hard, wondering if you're safe, wondering if the person who's going to hurt you is, is, is home from work. Some of you know what it's like to wake up and know if your kids are safe. Where are my kids? Where are they? And you've got to get your eyes on them, and you can't rest until you do. To know what it's like if your family is going to stay together. We struggle to sleep practically, but why? Why do we struggle to sit still, to go to bed? Why do we constantly have to keep going? Why do we struggle to take time off? First off, we are by far the most work-obsessed, overworked, most productive society in history. Uh, there's a, a great book called the, Over, uh, the Overworked American, and it says Americans in generally, general work longer hours with less vacation four more years than any other industrialized country. We retire later, 
and we work longer during the day. And there's a lot of reasons for this, and I'm going to put some of them up on uh, the blog this week. Uh, but there's a ton of different ones. Uh, they have to do with the fact that uh, because we can work from anywhere, technology has allowed us to work from anywhere, so we work everywhere. And they come from the fact that our uh, job forces now, uh, we have very little job security. If you're just not good at your job or it's no longer profitable, they'll, they'll kill the, the whole uh, section. Um, but they come, uh, they, there's a lot of these reasons. I'll put them up. But we are the most overscheduled culture in the world. And it floods down into our kids. It's not just a problem for us adults. It's invaded and commandeered the childhood. Our kids are swamped with expectations and time commitments between music lessons and tutoring and sports practices and travel baseball and school club meetings and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and dance practice and marching brand competitions and part-time jobs to afford all the gear they need for all of those hobbies. And then they have to come home and fit homework somewhere in between and then driver's ed and chores on the weekends. And what's crazy is most of them are balancing all of that while carrying on uh, hundreds of Snapchat threads, Netflix binges, and constant cell phone use. And how do they learn to do this? Where did they learn to live at this breakneck speed? Could it be that they learned it from parents who were always multitasking while parenting? Two weeks ago, I quoted from the AA Big Book uh, that resentment is the number one offender and that resentments destroy more alcoholics than anything else. And from resentment stem all spiritual disease. And we uh, talked about the cure for resentment is prayer. But today we're going to talk about another, another huge enemy. And this will be the enemy that even keeps you from dealing with your resentments, from knowing that you are full of resentment, from knowing that you're bitterness, you're bitter. It's the enormous daily enemy to our faith and our relationship, our joy. And it's what we can call busyness. Busyness. Uh, one of my, I don't actually know this guy, uh, but his name's Phil Anderson. And I should know him. I've met everybody who knows him, but he wrote this incredible book called Running on Empty. And it's a great book. I highly recommend it. It's easy to read. But he says this. Phil Anderson says, if you live in North America, you are a prime candidate for slow death by overstimulation. Your environment is busy depleting you with noise and distractions and the compulsion to always be in a hurry. If I had set out to destroy my identity as a beloved child of God, I could not have done better than living in America at the start of the 21st century. The greatest threats I've encountered are not the arguments of skeptics or the lure of drinks and drug or sex. The greatest threats are the constant busyness and frantic hurry that demand my allegiance. We are rarely grounded in the present moment, which is the only place where God can be encountered because we're always rushing out behind, beyond it or we're replaying in our mind our disappointing past. Shame and sadness over our dark past often drives us to strive for a brighter future, which generally winds up being busier rather than better. He goes on to say, I'm as vulnerable as a recovering alcoholic working in a liquor store. So many days I've woken up with a fresh resolve to resist the lure of busyness, only to discover I'm not as strong as I thought I was. And I can easily convince myself that amid the noise and the bustle, I'll still hear the voice of God, and I'll still accomplish all I want to do. But the noise and the busyness and the hurry deliver nothing but a heart that's hard of hearing and a life of anxious longing and weary 
disappointment. Anybody relate to that, that busyness is killing us? Am I wrong? We work 60 hours a week, commute another 10 hours a week. We spend every weekend at travel ball and two nights a week on the ball field and one night at scouts and camp out every other weekend. And I get anesthetized to it until I try to schedule someone for dinner. I don't know how busy I am until you say, hey, we should hang out. And I'm like, yeah, let's get that on the calendar. What are you doing in November? Like anybody had that conversation lately? And we can get really busy. This just happens to even us church people, right? We can get really busy for God. It's not just kids sports or dance or adult CrossFit or bowling or volunteering in a hospital. We can get really busy at church. It's why we created Serve Night. We said when one, meeting a, one meeting a month, everybody meets at the same time. You're not allowed to be on multiple committees anymore because you're killing yourself. And it goes on and it says, uh, Phil Anderson again said it this way. He said, my life was filled with doing things for God rather than pursuing intimacy with God. I had perfected busyness but felt miserably at stillness. I worked constantly, averaging 70 to 80 hours a week, but I didn't know who my boss was. Although I knew facts and ideas about Jesus, I didn't know what it meant to be Jesus' friend. I had confidence in my ability to do the work of God, but I was clueless when it came to letting God work in me. I could talk easily with others about Jesus, but I knew nothing about how to sit still long enough for Jesus to talk to me. I was comfortable around others who knew God, but the thought of being alone with God was enough to keep me occupied with the demands of ministry. The idea of sitting alone in a room with God made me nervous. We struggle to sit in God's presence, and so our default is to run, to do something for God, to do something uh, to medicate uh, the, the hunger inside our souls, and our world is stuck on fast forward, and as much as we hate it, we also like it, because all of our doing comes out of unbelief from disbelief. It comes from a need to prove ourselves. There is a work under our work. There is a business under our busyness. And that business is the work of building our worth, our identity, our significance. We are all trying to justify our existence to prove our value to society. And so uh, we medicate away the spiritual hunger. When we're busy, we don't have to think about the important matters that we want to avoid. Busyness enables us to escape the quiet voice or the deeper issues in our life that trouble and haunt us. It allows us to, to, to push away the resentments, the fears, the addictions, uh, it, the emotions, the things we don't want to deal with. Plus, busyness makes us feel important. And so when we slow down, we worry that people will forget us. Or worse, they'll realize they don't actually need us. So we're always striving, always striving to prove ourselves. There's two uh, movie illustrations that illustrate this graphically. You remember Rocky as talking uh, to Adrian, and she said, why is it so important that you go the distance? Why is it so important? Why are you working this hard for this fight? And Rocky said, because I know if I go the distance, then I'll know I'm not a bum. Then I'll know I'm not a bum. Rocky doesn't believe he's not a bum, so he has to prove he's not a bum. He's trying to build his business. filled with doubt and anxiety and fear and he's working his tail off and somebody asked him about that and he says when that gun fires when that whistle blows I have 
10 seconds to justify my existence. Some of us never actually work as hard as we can. We underwork, but we do it for the same reasons. We're afraid that we're a bum, and if I gave it all I got, I would just realize I can't go get this pimp. I am a bum. I'm not as good as I think I am. And so as long as I procrastinate or waste time, then I could say, well, if I really applied myself to this, it would be a different story. I've got four-year-olds on Jack's soccer team with both of these problems. It, it trickles down to our kids. Remember uh, in Numbers, he said, the sins of the parents are visited on the kids. That's not God punishing your kids. That's you teaching your kids sinful behavior. i got four-year-olds who score a goal and then run to the sidelines like, do you love me now? Do you love me now? Do you notice me? And they look over at mom and dad, and mom and dad's holding the phone. And I'm sure mom or dad meant to take a picture, but then they saw 16 push notifications and their faith in their fantasy football uh, lineup needed setting. And so mom and dad missed the soccer goal. I also have four-year-olds who won't play. You know why they won't play? Because they don't want to do anything they're not already good at because that might involve failing. And so they just won't play because they're scared. If they tried to play, they wouldn't be any good. I'll tell you what, they're not any good because they won't try. Our busyness keeps us out of the present, and it keeps us multitasking at very best, and it keeps us thinking about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, and it keeps us looking backwards and wishing we got more done yesterday. But Hebrews wants us to live in the present over and over again. It says, today, 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 if you hear his voice, today. Five times we hear the word today, because today is the only time that exists. C.S. Lewis, Jack Lewis, explains uh, that human beings are both um, made out of the dust of the earth and the spirit of God. We live in time, but we were made for eternity. And the only place where time and eternity overlap is right now, is the present moment, is today. Today is the only day that exists. Today you can live. Today you can listen. Today you can respond to God. Today you can listen to God's invitation and God's identity and God's plan. And so what is God inviting you into today? What does God want you to do today? God wants you to rest. We weren't made to live on fast forward. And God's rest, the promise of God's rest is still open. We see it in verse 1 and verse 6. It says, today, uh, since the promise of entering his rest still stands. That's verse 1. Verse 6, it says, since therefore still remains uh, for some to enter that that rest. So I want to ask you two questions. we got a lot of work to do today, so you're just going to have to keep up. I know I'm going fast. Take notes quick. What is this rest that God's offering us? And how do we enter this rest? What is this rest? First, we see that it is God's rest. This is not just the rest that God gives. This is the rest that God enjoys. This is God's personal rest. Like God has invited you on to his, into his sunroom for a retreat. You see this in verses 3 and 4. You see that it says, God's works have been finished since the creation of the world. Verse 3, verse 4. For somewhere God has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Hebrews quotes Genesis 2-2 to tell us, The rest that God wants to share is the rest that God enjoys first. And so entering into God's rest is joining God in the rest God has at the creation of the world. But what does that mean that God rests? Does it mean like God's tired? Like like the way you and I get, right? We're like, you kids are driving me crazy. I'm going to take a nap. Keep your little sister alive. And if one of you only can survive, then one out of two is not bad. No, God doesn't get overwhelmed or worn out. Uh, Psalm 121 says, God who keeps watch over Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. So what does it mean? 
Well, remember the people that read the book of Hebrews initially know the Bible better than you or I do. So we have to remember the context of any scripture text. Every day in Genesis, God makes something, and at the end of the day, he looks around and he says the same thing. He says, it is good. Yeah, see, you responded. It is good. And at the end of the sixth day, after creating man and woman and all the animals and all the plants and all the fish and all the water and the sea and the sky and everything in it, God God says what? It is very good. It is very good. And immediately after that, it says God rested on the seventh day. Do you see the connection? What does it mean? Do you know what this means? Do you know what it means that God says it is very good and the seventh day he rests? Tim Keller, a preacher in uh, New York, he says this, that what this means is that to rest is to be completely satisfied with what has been done. Let me say that again. To rest is to be completely satisfied in what has been done. To rest is to be completely satisfied in what has been accomplished. To rest in God is to be completely satisfied in what God has done. To rest in God is to be completely satisfied in what God has done. And God can rest because God looks out on creation and says, that's very good. He's completely satisfied. He doesn't say, you know what, we really should have made the trunks on elephants longer and the tails on rats shorter. God says, it's very good. Be satisfied. But you and I are never satisfied. I mean, I'm not. In my own life, do you know how this sounds? At the end of the day, my wife will say, how did you feel like Sunday went? And you know what I'll say? Awesome. I'm trying, babe. I'm trying. You ever had a bad interaction with your kid and you're talking about it later? And you're like, I'm trying the best I know. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. You had a hard day at work? I'm trying. You started a house project that you didn't actually know how to do? And you're like, I'm trying. What my heart is saying is, please don't cut me. Please don't cut me. Please don't cut me. Please don't cut me. But God didn't just rest. He shared his rest. Think about this with me. What day did God rest? The seventh. What day was man and woman created? Six day. So what, it's the seventh day for God, but what day is it for Adam and Eve? It's their first full day. Their first full day is the day. Isn't that beautiful, right? From the very beginning, we were built to be completely satisfied in what God has done. We were built to delight in the fact that based on what that we can know God's character and we can trust God's promise based on the work God has already done to be completely satisfied that God has done enough to demonstrate we can trust him, we can rest in this, we can relate to this, we can chill in this. But we couldn't. We couldn't. And so we rebelled against him and we, we ran away into sin and we got lost. And you know what that created inside of each of us? A cosmic restlessness of what uh, one writer, Judas uh, Shulovitz, calls uh, an endless murmur of self-reproach. What the Bible calls shame and guilt. We try to medicate that shame and that guilt, that insecurity with busyness. But the rest still is available. The rest is still available. And how is it still available? Now that we've walked away from it once, how is it still available? Well, one who knew perfect rest came into creation. That one is Jesus. And Jesus walks his life through us. You ever notice how Jesus, even when he's sleeping, is never, uh, he's always at peace. Always at peace through his whole life. Even when it's crazy, Jesus is at peace. It says they tried to kill him. It does not say Jesus then freaked out. It just says Jesus just walked through the fire. 
Jesus wakes up in a storm. Does Jesus like freak out in the middle of the storm? There's, he's like, he's, he's so tired that he is passed out. He wakes up and he's in a bathtub. There's water up to his chest. It doesn't say Jesus freaked out. Says Jesus woke up and told the wind to calm down. Jesus has endless rest and peace. He can sleep in a moment's notice. He can do these crazy things. He's always at rest until a specific moment. You know what moment that is? Where Jesus gets cosmically restless? On the cross. On the cross, we see Jesus has no more rest. He is torn apart. He's sweating blood. On the cross, he's writhing in agony. He's crying out in pain. He's saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because Jesus gave up his rest in order to invite you back into rest. You see, the Bible says in Isaiah and in Revelation, there is no rest for the wicked. They cannot, they're like the seas that never sleep. And to save you and I, wicked people, Jesus had to take that upon himself. He took our sin, and with that sin was cosmic restlessness. He carried it to the cross. And then you know what he said? The last words he said in Greek is tetelestai. In English, it is, it is finished. You know what we and I can, you and I can rest in now? Not only did God finish his work in creation, but God finished his work in the cross. The finished work of the cross shows us there's nothing left for you or I to add to the finished work of Jesus. And so I can rest in the promises of God that span from creation to the cross and the whole new heaven. That I now know the whole story. I know that I was created by God and I was created for God. And that God will sacrifice his only son to bring me into rest. I can trust and rest in the love of God. I can be completely satisfied in what has been done. Not in what I have done, but in what Christ has done on my behalf. If I think salvation is up to me, if I think God accepts me based on my behavior, on my actions, I will never rest. But if I believe that Christ accepts me, that God loves me, that God is for me, that God will work all things to my good, not because I tried hard enough, not because I showed up enough times, not because I went to church enough times, not because I gave enough money, but because of what Christ did then I can rest and I can be completely satisfied in what has already been done. And what this does in my own life, what this does in my own life, as I told you before, when I do not trust God, when I am not resting in Jesus, when I think that this church is up to how good I preach, when I think that this church is up to how good the program is run, when I think that my son is um, dependent on how good a dad I am, when I think that my family's provision is, is mandated on Did you do your best, and do you trust God to use it? Only two questions you got to ask anybody. Did you try your best, and can you trust God to use it? When I go to bed at night, did I get everything done? No. Do I trust that God will use the stuff I did today? So how do we rest? Simple. I know we're going a little bit long today, and I just don't care. I want to care. I just can't. Because this is so important. Do you realize we're dying of this? Like we are dying of this. Our kids are dying of this. And so I don't care if I hold you 15 extra minutes if it keeps you alive. If it saves our kids. We, how do we rest in God? 
We trust and we obey. We trust and we obey. We trust in Jesus' finished work. We remember who we are and whose you are. We remember what God has done on our behalf. That my primary identity is not in what I do, but what in Jesus I do. Not in what people say about me, but what in God says about me. My primary identity is in this. My primary identity is I was a slave to fear, but now I am a child of God. Do you know why God instituted the Sabbath for the Israelites in the wilderness? You think about this, right? He sets them free. What's the first thing he tells them to do? Don't work on the seventh day. Why? Because you were slaves. You know what slaves do not get? A day off. If you cannot stop working, you are still a slave. You are still a slave. He said, but you were a slave. You ain't a slave anymore. And you're going to learn how to not be slaves by taking time off. Do you think they learned that? No. Do you know why we have to institute regular rest in our lives? So that when Matthew comes and when Florence comes, when the trials come, when our kids rebel, we know how to rest. Do you know when it's too late to learn to try to rest and trust God? In the storm. I mean, he'll still show up, I promise. But you'll be freaking out. That's a technical theological term. I have to learn to rest before the storm hits. And I do that by regularly spending time in God's presence. By repeating to myself who God is and what he's about. And then I obey what he tells me to do. You will never rest. You can tell yourself, God loves me, 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 God loves me. me." And you should tell yourself that a thousand times. But you will never believe it, and you will never walk in it, and you will never find rest if you are walking in disobedience. If you are not doing the things you know God has asked you to do, you will not be able to rest. If you know God's asked you to to go on a mission trip or to read the Bible with your family or to pray with your wife or um, to, to serve in church or to, uh, to give to the poor or uh, to tell the truth and you're not doing it, you'll never be able to rest. Never, ever, ever. And if you are doing things you should not do, that you know you should not do, that are contrary to God's word, if you're uh, doing things that you know you ought not do, you will never rest. Never you are deliberately and habitually sinning you will not have rest because you are a slave but you can have rest you can stop living like a slave today because you have been set free and obedience is not some kind of like the flip coin of faith obedience is faith let me illustrate this with my hands right you believe that Jesus is saving your life come you need to and obey daily we have to sit in God's presence have to sit in God's presence I have to make time to lay in that hammock when you think of Bible study when you think of prayer 
I don't want you to think of plowing. I don't want you to think of working out. I want you to think of laying in a hammock. When I go to bed, I lay in my bed and I say, God, I want to just lay in your love. I want to recline in your love like sitting in a hammock. That may sound silly to you, but this is how I think of it. I tell myself these things. God, I would rest in you as I would lay in a hammock. I trust you're sufficient. I trust you can use me. I trust that you're good, that you're committed to me. I lean into you. And I just tell myself this over and again. And I repeat myself the things in the Bible that make me uncomfortable because they sound too good to be true. God, nothing is wasted. All things will work together for your good. God, you know what you're doing. God, you call me the apple of your eye. God, you have called me by name, and you will, you know every hair on my head. You will not let anything come into my life that will not push me to you and make me like Jesus. God, I tell myself these things. Second, there's a difference between vacation and Sabbath. This took me a long time to learn. There's a difference between recreation and retreat. And so I would tell you to take time off. Take more time off. For me, Sunday is a 16 to 18 hour workday. This is not my Sabbath. I take Fridays off. And I do not touch sermons from Friday, all day Friday, until lunchtime on Saturday. The rest of the week I'm working on this sermon. But from Friday to Saturday at lunch, I just don't touch the thing. Rest of my time, I have to love my family. I have to coach Dex soccer time. And so what do we do? I split your time off into three categories. Devotional time where you worship God. Recreational time where you do something you don't get paid to do but you love to do. And lastly, passive time where you just let whatever happens, happens in a good way and not a bad way. I want you to practice that right now. Right now. Will you close your eyes and imagine yourself in a hammock? This is going to sound odd, but I, I think this is so important. I know I'm telling you, I think this, like, until we get this, we will strive. We will kill ourselves. And then when the hurricanes come, when our houses are destroyed, we won't have the faith to trust God, to rest, that God is good, that God is still trustworthy, that God knows what he's doing. We won't. When cancer comes, we won't know how to rest until we, unless we learn it now. When our spouse dies, when we won't. Until we know who we are and we rest in God's promises we rest in what God says about us there laying in your hammock the hammock of your mind's eye this is who God says you were this is a letter from God to you listen to this you are valuable I am the creator and you are my creation I breathed your I breathed into your nostrils the breath of life I created you in my own image My eyes saw your unformed substance, and I knit you together in your mother's womb. I know the numbers of hair on your head, and before a word is even on your tongue, I know what you're going to say. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are more valuable to me than many sparrows, and I have given you dominion over the sheep and the oxen and all the beasts of the fields and the birds in the heavens and the fish of the sea. I have crowned you with glory and honor as the pinnacle and the final act of my creation. However, from the very beginning, you exchanged this truth about me for a lie, and you worshiped and you served things rather than me, the creator. You have sinned and you have fallen short of my glory. And just as I said to Adam and Eve, the penalty for your sin is death. And in your sin, you were spiritually dead. You were children of wrath, living as enemies to me. You turned aside from me and you became corrupt. And there is no one who does good, not even one. 
what you deserve is my righteous judgment. And yet, and yet, and yet, in my great love, I gave my unique son that all of you who believe in me and him will not perish but have everlasting life. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. While you were still hostile to me, you were reconciled to me by the death of my son. Sin does not have the last word. Grace does. Now everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. You who have believed are born again. I have adopted you. You are children of God, heirs of God. You are no longer orphans. You belong. You belong to me. And I love you as a perfect father. In my eyes, you are brand new. The old has passed away and the new has come. Sin is no longer your master, for you died to sin and now are alive to me. You are finally free from the slavery of sin and death. There is now no condemnation for you. All your sins are forgiven. All your unrighteousness has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You are now righteous in my sight with the very righteousness of my perfect son. You've been saved by grace. You've been justified by faith. You are utterly secure in me. Nothing will be able to separate you from my love in Christ Jesus. No one is able to snatch you out of my hand. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You not only have a new father, but you also have a new family of brothers and sisters. You are now part of the people of God. And together, the life you now live is by faith in my son, Jesus. To look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Jesus is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Christ is in you by my spirit, and you are in Christ. Stay close to Jesus. Abide in him, for your life is found in him. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Don't live by your own power or understanding. Live by my spirit within you. Remember, I have given you the Holy Spirit to be with you and to be in you. The spirit will guide you into all truth, and he will help you obey me, and will empower you to do my work. And as you seek me, as you see more of my glory, I am transforming you into the image of my son Jesus. One day you will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, as the last trumpet sounds, when Jesus appears, you'll be just like him, because you shall see him as he is. You will be delivered from your body of death through Jesus, and your dwelling place will be with me. And I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. You will drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. And I myself will make for you a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. You will enter my rest, inherit the kingdom I've prepared for you, and you will step into the fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. But most of all, you will see my face, and you will be with me where I am now. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of this calling. You are no longer darkness, but light in my son. Walk as children of light. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. I have called you. I have chosen you. You are now a saint, a servant, a steward, and a soldier. You are a witness and a worker. You are victorious. You have a glorious future. You are a citizen of heaven. You are an ambassador for my son, Jesus. You are my beloved. Let's pray. God, we need to hear those words spoken again and again and again. And until you speak them to us, we will always be slaves to busyness. God, this week, would you give us the discipline to step away from busy that we might step into your presence? 
we would never get so busy working for you that we don't let you work in us, that we would never be so busy talking about you that we don't let you talk to us, that we never get so busy about uh, what we are doing that we forget what you are doing. Somebody today uh, might be learning to believe that for the first time. And you want to surrender to God. You can do that right now. It's as easy as ABC. You admit you are a sinner. You've been running life your own way. But B, believe Jesus died to save you. That you can trust that is enough. And C, commit to following him for the rest of your life. And do it with a simple prayer. God, I admit that I am a slave to busyness. And apart from you, I am destroying my life. But I believe you died to save me, Jesus. And I trust you. And so I surrender and commit to following you for the rest of my life. Amen. Friends, not because we have to, but because we get to. Let's worship God.